Stories Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Mrs. Marcel was talking to me. I could see her lips moving. I powered the pressure washer off and lifted my goggles, pushed one ear defender cup back behind my ears. Sorry, I didn't catch that? I said. I said, when you're done here, you should come inside for coffee. I need to pick your brains for a new auto mechanic, too. She drew herself up to her full four feet and ten inches, dug her bony knuckles into her stout hips. I sensed she had a bone to pick with her current mechanic. Don't you want to go to Jim up by the mill? I asked, but she'd turned away already and was stumping back up her steps into the house. I shrugged and pulled the ear cup and goggles back into place, turned the water back on and got back to it. This was about a month or so back, and it was the second driveway that week which, at the time, I hadn't noticed or thought about. Both stains were similar. Long, reddish-brown patches on the driveways, running down towards the road. With the first, I had jokingly asked if he'd murdered someone, because it did look like blood. But old Mrs. Marcel was in no mood for jokes, so I'd not tried it with her. Besides, I knew it wasn't blood, just oil. Engines leak sometimes, and the red made me think there was a problem, too— that maybe something else was getting into the oil in these leaky cars. Wasn't coolant red? To be honest, I was always a little pleased with a leaky car. It's not hard to clean up, but it is specialist, which means people are more likely to call in a handyman to do it than try to take care of it themselves. That's where I step in. Since my wife died, and it's just been me and Bean... Handyman work suits me best. It's not super regular, but it's totally flexible and means I can be with her before and after school and on the weekends. And when there are bigger jobs like house painting or landscaping, I can reschedule them for school vacation times and take Bean with me. She's only six, but a decent little helper and good at keeping out of trouble. When I was done and all my kit was put away, I still had 40 minutes before the school bus would arrive, so I did go in for that coffee. Here's your fee. I hope a check suits. I know you guys like cash, but I like to keep myself right. Mrs. Marcel slid the check across the table to me, and, glancing as I picked and folded it, I saw she had rounded up a generous tip on top. A check is perfect, Mrs. Marcel. And thank you very much. I said, then took a sip of my coffee. It was good, strong, and hot, with plenty of cream and sugar. You were asking about a mechanic? Oh, yes. Her old voice wavered into indignation. That young Jim. I had him look it over, and he said there's nothing wrong with it. Now, I'm no spring chicken, but I'm no fool either. No car leaves a stain like you just removed on the driveway for no reason. There must be something wrong with it. 
When my Charlie came to pick his girls up from me on Sunday, he said there must be a big problem. Not just a leak, because it's all kind of red. Well, what do you think? Do you know a better auto shop that'll take a look at it? I had to fight a smile at her rant. Young Jim was nearing 60 himself. There's McDade's over in Preston, I suggested. Or I hear the Ellis boy will come out and do homers now he's finished his training. He's always been smart with engines. Jackson Ellis? She looked scandalized. That boy was still in diapers last Tuesday. I guess I'll give McDade's a call. Daddy! Bean's voice was high and joyful as she bounced down the steps and off the school bus. I opened my arms and she ran into them, barreling into me and burying her face in my neck. You all right, my jumping bean? I laughed at her enthusiasm. Daddy, you smell like wet dry wood. She pulled away, wrinkling her nose. I was washing driveways today. I stood, took her bag from her, and took her hand. What about you? What did you do today? By the time we got into our kitchen, I was fully versed on Bean's day, including the great Lego argument, what Leo did to Veronica at recess, and how terrible the three times table is. Bean sat at the kitchen and labored on over the three times table as I made us dinner. Just as I was about to serve it, the doorbell went, so I pulled the just-combined pasta and sauce off the heat and went to get it. Through the panes in the front door, I saw my neighbor Phil. Hey, Phil. I called as I pulled the door open. We were just about to eat. Want to join us? Phil had lived across the street since before we had moved here. He had been a widower for a decade already when my Elsie died and became a pillar of strength and comfort to me then. Coming over with food, bringing his niece Marie over to teach me how to French braid Bean's tangled mane of toddler curls, and often just coming over of an evening, sitting with me on the porch and bearing quiet witness to my tears. He was like a father to me now, and always welcome. Hello, Matt. I've got my dean and his crowd coming over. I just wanted to stop in and ask a favor. Marie's car has lost its oil on the driveway. I wondered if you'd run over some time and clean it up for her. I'll pay you, of course, usual rates. I flapped a hand at this. Your money's no good to me, Phil, you know that, I said. Tell her I'll swing by in the morning. I've got another driveway over on her street to do tomorrow anyway. I'll do her first. As I made my way back to the kitchen, I paused a little. Four leaky cars in only eight or nine days. Maybe there was something dodgy going on over at Jim Baxter's automotive and body shop. When I got to Marie's the next day, she was standing by her car getting ready to leave, her boys arguing noisily in their car seats. Matt! She had the sort of smile that blinded, and she blessed me with it now. I'm so grateful to you coming so soon. You have to let me pay you. It's okay. Your Uncle Phil already did. I fibbed, and her raised eyebrow let me know that I was caught. I will be checking. She teased. Then she waved back at the driveway. I'm sure you'll find the problem easy enough. I don't know how it happened. I only had an oil change a few weeks ago. It should be golden, not brown. But then it should also be inside my car, so maybe that's splitting hairs. Hey, is it Jim Baxter you use for your car? I asked, wondering if I could solve the little mystery. Yeah, I usually do. 
Marie nodded. But last time he was full up and I was well overdue, so I took it over to Preston and let Billy McDade do it. That'll learn me for being disloyal, right? I'm taking it to Jim's now, right after I drop the boys at the sitter. It's weird, though. Looking at the mess on the drive, you'd think it wouldn't run, but it says it's okay. Oil gauge is reading normal, and the dipstick looks fine, too. Go figure. She shrugged. Marie's driveway looked like the others I'd cleaned that week. A reddish-brown stain, dried in, pooled at the top of the driveway near the house and running down to the road. I scuffed at it with the toe of my boot, and it smudged a little. Powdery. I bent and rubbed my fingers across it, and a little reddening dust stuck to them. I sniffed it. It had a real weird smell. Not like oil at all, not blood either, but something sort of musky and sweet. Maybe it was coolant. Cars weren't my forte. I had no idea what coolant smelled like. I went back to the truck to unload the Simpson power washer and get to work. Marie's neighbor, Greg Wallace, was in a foul mood when I got to his. Marie's had been a straightforward job. This stuff basically hosed right off and didn't stain anything like oil can, so I was at his not long after ten. You said you'd be by in the morning, he said, by way of greeting. And a good morning it is, Mr. Wallace, I said carefully. I didn't want to fight with a customer, but I wasn't about to be told off for no reason either. Barely. You said the job would be done this morning. I doubt you'll finish before midday arriving this late. I could see you up there at the beautician's house. I wondered what he had against Marie. She was a sunny, friendly woman who was generous with her time and always happy to pitch in. If I had to guess, it'd be to do with her skin tone. I wasn't about to engage with that nonsense. I believe you've had an oil leak? Show me the way to the stain and I'll get started. I kept my eyes off him as I unloaded the washer again. I have no such thing, he said. I use my garage every single night, no exceptions. No, this was someone else. Some asshole parked in my driveway in front of my garage all night. That's what it was. Wow, I replied mildly. I bet you let him have it, breaking down in your drive and leaving you this mess. Oh, I didn't see him. Spittle was gathering in the corner of his mouth. Rage foam. I only found the stain. No, he was smart about it. I'll give him that. Must have come in after midnight and left before five. And quiet. Nobody heard him neither. I had my daughter staying in the guest room over the garage, and she didn't hear nothing neither. An unknown driver came and parked their silent yet leaky vehicle in his driveway for just under five hours overnight, then left. Fine despite the massive leak and without being seen or heard. I looked up and down the broad leafy street, which had ample, unrestricted parking all along both sides. This guy's biscuit wasn't done in the middle, but that wasn't my concern. I followed him across to his stain. His driveway was more level, and the patch had stayed close to the garage door. Reddish footprints and one tire track where he'd driven through it were blotted around the main puddle, which was about three feet across. The center of it was darker, still slightly wet. I had the urge to bend and touch it, but I felt weird about it with him standing watching me, so instead I pulled on my goggles and ear defenders and got to work. 
There were three more that week, five the next. It was starting to really puzzle me. That Friday, Phil came over for dinner, as usual, and after, when we were sitting on the porch sipping beers, Bean laid across my lap with a Dr. Pepper, he told me that there was a rumor going around that I was leaving the stains. What? I sat up, jogging Bean's little arm as she sipped, so the bubbles foamed up her nose and make her cough. I'm sorry, Bean. I held her close until she caught her breath again. (laughs) That's what Greg Wallace reckons. Phil laughed. You're sneaking about in the dark, dumping oil out onto people's driveways to drum up the little business. Surely nobody believes that. That old jerk, I thought. I'd had his property pristine in under 90 minutes, and he had still quibbled the price and paid no tip. Someone should dump oil on his property. He told me a mystery parker in a silent vehicle had left his stain. That guy's crazier than a Betsy bug. Phil held back his more colorful insults for Bean's sake. He took a swig from his bottle. Still, he paused. It is a bit strange. How many have there been now? Fourteen? I said, squinting as I numbered them all in my head. No, fifteen. I'm doing one tomorrow, too, over by the mall. It's funny. I thought about it. Mostly, they were all over on the east side until this week. Now they're spreading further to the west. Some bored teens from over this way, Phil declared, putting his empty bottle down, folding his hands on his spreading midsection. Maybe, I said. But I'd love to know what they're using. It's not oil? Phil leaned back. Bean laid her feet across his lap, and he smiled and tickled one. No, I don't know what it is, I said, then drained the last of my beer, too. Something greasy, something mostly water-soluble. Smells a bit like wild things, like a wild fur before you tan it, maybe? It's not blood, is it? Phil lowered his voice a little, though Bean was right there, and was surely drinking in his words faster than her soda. No, no. I shook my head. Definitely not that. Much milder than that. Faintly... animal. It has a chemical note to it, too. Sweet, almost. Say, what does coolant smell like? Phil shrugged and began to get up. Like maple syrup, I guess, he said. Or candy, anyway. Sweet. Talking of sweet, I think your sweet bean needs her flower bed. I'll say goodnight. Bean had begun to feel limp in my arms. Phil patted her head goodbye, then headed across the road to his home, dropping our empty bottles into the recycling bin on his way. After bath time, I had Bean snuggled up in clean pajamas, tucked under her puffy quilt in her soft bed. The room was dimly lit by a nightlight, her toys casting orange shadows on her canary-yellow walls. Can't I move upstairs, Daddy? She asked me sleepily. She'd been asking for weeks, and I didn't know why. She had been sleeping down in this room since before Elsie had died. Before that, she had slept in the nursery up in the attic, opposite mine and Elsie's room. But we'd moved her down in preparation for the new baby. After Elsie died and there was no baby, an amniotic embolism had killed them both in her eight month. I'd found it too hard to pack it all away. The crib, the changing station, the tiny clothes and glider chair. 
It was bad enough being in my own room, surrounded by Elsie's clothes and things. For the first few months, I tended to go down to check on Bean and then end up sleeping the night on her floor. So I'd basically just shut the nursery door and left it be. It had been nearly four years, and though I saw the door open sometimes, I knew Bean had been in there to have a look, I'd still not gotten around to dealing with it properly. But this is your room, my little Bean, I said, tucking her quilt up under her chin. Why would you want to leave your nice yellow room? I want to be too high up, she replied, and I smiled at this notion. Too high up for what? I asked her. But her eyes were roaming now, drifting under still cracked open lids, searching for her dreams. When I got to the door, she spoke again. It's the hippo raptor leaving the patches, Daddy. She said, so softly I could barely hear her. The what? I whispered back. But she didn't reply. She was already asleep. Her words came back to me the following week. I'd just finished up my third driveway of the day, a new record, and was hustling to get packed up and home in time for the bus. That morning had been particularly bad. A pretty huge patch, and also inexplicably, the foot and tail of a squirrel amongst the mass. Presumably some coyote or dog had stopped off to have a snack under the car before it sprung a leak. That one had taken me longer, and I'd been chasing my own tail the rest of the day. As I heaved the washer back into the truck, I heard a roaring and looked round to see one of the huge yellow work machines coming down the street. They must be lost, I thought. They were clearing the forest out to the east, making room for two new housing developments and a strip mall. It surprised me that they thought that many homes would fill, but I guess with the new canning plant opening over in Preston, there would probably be a bit of influx of labor looking for places to settle in the area. There were an array of huge machines coming and going from the logging site every day. Machines to cut, machines to strip, machines to drag, stumps out, diggers, levelers, chippers, and more. Half of them I'd never seen before in my life. This one slowed beside me. The engine fell silent, and there was a tick, tick, tick of hot metal contracting inside. The driver, a well-built woman with a deep tan, leaned her head out. This ain't Sycamore now, is it, sir? She shouted down to me, smiling. No, ma'am, I grinned up. This is the intersection of Green and Parsonage. Sycamore is a good mile down Parsonage to the east, probably your eighth on the right, once you're headed that way. I pointed back the way she had come. Well, ain't I a goose? She laughed back, then waved, and her engine rumbled into life again. As I watched, she did a three-point turn, inching slowly into a driveway across the street driving almost up to the house to gain space, then slowly reversing out again to the other side. Soon, she was roaring off the way she had come, and as the vehicle retreated, I saw the black model name stenciled on the huge yellow back of it. Raptor 900. Well, I thought, maybe Bean is onto something. Maybe it's the logging vehicles using driveways to turn that are doing it. Whatever it was, it kept me busy. Soon I had two or three a day, almost every day, and was having to have Phil sit with Bean a few evenings a week to fit a few more in. I was beginning to wonder if I should get an assistant. 
and maybe I'd have gone wondering about it. But then the other thing happened, and that overshadowed everything else. The Markham baby, a chubby little blonde boy called Dexter of about 18 months, was kidnapped. Or at least, that was what his parents said. But I don't know if the sheriff believed them. One of his men came to talk to me. I'd cleaned the Markham driveway a few days before. Notice anything odd when you were there? He'd asked. Odd how? I replied. You know, anything seem off with the mom or anything? Did you see the baby? No, sir. I shook my head. A teenager met me, pointed at the stain, left me to it. When I was done, the same teenager came out with an envelope. I don't know all their names. The eldest girl, I think, she's a senior. The envelope held cash, my quoted price, plus a modest tip. I didn't see Mr. or Mrs. Markham or the baby at all. I'd shuffled stuff around on my desk and produced the envelope now empty. Matt driveway clean, written on it in blue messy ink. I heard someone cut the screen, took the baby out the window? I knew I shouldn't ask, but I was curious. What parent wouldn't be? Mm. The officer had grunted. So they say. Is it not true? Screen work cut. We're completely gone, the man said. Second floor window. No sign of a ladder. Nobody heard nor saw nothing. Baby gone. Blanket on the floor. Midway between the cot and the window. Seems staged to me. Mama claims she put the baby down after a bottle at 1 a.m. Looked in on her way back to bed at 1.10 and he was gone. But nobody heard nor saw nothing. Don't seem right. None of it, but we'll see. I was taken aback by this level of detail, and was silent. So you didn't see or hear anything odd? He said again, but it wasn't a question. He was already putting his hat back on to leave. That night, when Bean asked for the hundredth time if she could move upstairs, I decided she could. Last night, it was ready for her. Drum roll, please, I said and Phil began to tap out on the banister with his fingers. I hereby present Beatrice Grace Johnson with... I threw the old nursery door open with a flourish. Her new room! Bean went inside slowly, eyes wide, grinning wildly. Phil and I had spent the last three school days in there working on this in secret, but I had stayed with her favorite color, but for a more sophisticated look. I had chosen a paler, buttery yellow for the walls, though there was a feature strip on the chimney breast of Canary. She had a new bed, shaped like the frame of a house, and the mattress in the bottom and a chiffon curtain over the top, and a huge bean bag to lounge on beside it. We'd spent all that afternoon moving her dresser, shelves, bookcase, and belongings up the stairs. As a finishing touch, I'd stuck yellow and black paper butterflies, their wings folded as if in flight, and a fluttering trail across the longest wall. Oh, Daddy, Uncle Phil, she whispered now, turning eyes shining with tears towards us. I love it. It was Friday again, so Phil stayed to eat, and over pizza and green salad, Bean gave us a deconstruction of the Veronica and Leo situation, which seemed to be ongoing. When we were getting ready to open beers and head to the porch, Phil paused and gave himself a little shake. Matt, he said. 
I nearly forgot. You don't have an old AC sitting around I could borrow, do you? An AC? I don't, Phil. Sorry. What do you need it for? Oh, Marie's heading out of town tomorrow. The rascals are coming to me. Only my guest room out there above the garage is starting to get a little stuffy already. I was thinking an AC might get them a sounder sleep. Marie's boys, ages two and three, were full of life, to put it politely. I'm sorry, Phil. I shrugged. I can ask around tomorrow if you want. Nah. He shook his head and nodded outside towards the northern end of the street. That's fine. I'll ask Bill and Marcy at the end. They just got three new units fitted. We took our beers and bean her soda, a Coke this time, and sat outside to watch the sun begin to set. Bean was drifting as usual when it came time for Phil to leave. But as he went to stand, she grabbed him urgently by the wrist. Uncle Phil, she said. Make sure you lock the rascal's window so the hipporaptor don't take them out. It can find them in there. It clicks and finds you. We exchanged a look. I had told Phil about Bean's bedtime ramblings and the coincidence of the large machinery name. I guessed this Markham situation was getting to the little ones, too. There were a bunch of older Markham kids, though none in Bean's class, but enough that probably the school had discussed some of what had been going on with them all. It's okay, Bean, I said, gently uncurling her fingers from Phil's arm. The raptor only takes down trees, not kids. One took baby Dexter, it left the stain when it couldn't get in. But when it could get in, it didn't leave anything, not a stain, not the baby. She countered, more awake now. Now, Bean, none of us knows what happened to the baby. I soothed in my best, time to stop this now voice. But Phil, having been twisted round her little finger since the first time he met her, interrupted. Don't you fret, my little worry bean, he said, ruffling her hair. I'll keep those old hippo raptors out. I'd planned another chat about it at bedtime, but by the time I'd bathed her, bean was basically asleep. I carried her to the new bed and tucked her in. I didn't know what had happened to the Markham baby, but I sure was glad to have moved her upstairs close to me. Today was the weirdest one. I dropped Bean off with Phil for a few hours because the woman had sounded so frantic on the phone. So now I was to the east, at the house of a young couple with newborn twins. They seemed swamped. The bit of the house interior I could see was madly cluttered, and when the woman turned from me at the door to call to her husband that the drive guy was here, I saw a streak of baby puke running down her shirt across her left shoulder blade. It gave me a sudden pang of longing for Elsie, for the chaotic weeks of adjustment when Bean had arrived. It was the usual thing, stained drive, only this time there were two patches. The driveway wasn't in great condition with hollows and cracks, and the stains were fresh, still wet. This time I did dip my fingers in. The gunk that coated my fingertips was thick, slimy, reddish clear. The texture was odd, somewhere between syrup and lube. I sniffed it. It was the same as when it dried, musky sweet. I considered tasting it, but checked myself. God knows what they put in those monster machines to make them run. I got the patches cleaned up fine, 
The disrepair of the driveway made it easier. A lot of the gunk I just hosed down the cracks. The weirdest moment came when I was almost done. I was standing, staring down as I jetted the last bit of staining, when I felt something drip onto my neck. I put a hand absent-mindedly, and it came away with that same gunk on it. I craned my neck slowly to look up and get this. That shit was dripping from the basketball hoop. This left me with a lot more questions than answers. But by then, I just wanted to get paid and go pick Bean up to enjoy some of our Saturday. So I directed the jet upwards and hosed the hoop off too. We went to the movies to see the new Disney live action, then for burgers, and got back pretty late. Bean was almost asleep on her ride back, so I let her skip her bath, brushed her teeth as gently as I could, and carried her straight up to bed. I had a beer on my own, which I don't normally do, but I felt wound up after the basketball hoop. How the hell had that shit gotten up there? I picked up the tablet and scrolled for local news to see if they'd found the Markham baby yet, but there was no sign. Eventually I went to bed, but tossed and turned. Finally, I fell into a fitful dream in which Elsie was outside a window, urgently trying to tell me something. But when I finally got it open, she stretched her mouth wide and let out a series of rapid clicks. I started awake, heart hammering, sweat-soaked sheets wrapped around my legs. Untangling my legs, I swung round to sit on the edge of the bed. I didn't want to fall back into the same dream. I hated the ones where Elsie was scary. The raw, bleeding edge of missing her had begun to scar over nowadays. And though I still liked to see her in my dreams, it didn't carry the same sustaining comfort it used to. But seeing her scary was worse than not seeing her at all. A feeling crept over me like static. Then, as I realized, I could still hear the clicking. My whole body stiffened. I sat completely still and held my breath. It was coming from outside. Cautiously, silently, I stood, crept carefully to the window and looked out. It was a clear starlit night. A gibbous moon hung high and bright. At first, I didn't see anything. The window faced the side where the edges of ours and next door neighbors' yards meet. There was an old Scots pine tree, some smaller shrubs, a rusty wheelbarrow, and some broken fencing panels my neighbor was getting around to using. It all seemed normal. But as I looked out, there was movement and clicking started up again. And I saw it was something beside the pine, something big. A huge black shape, maybe 15 feet tall, was hulking by the tree. The top of it seemed to shiver slightly as the clicking intensified. As quietly as I could, I reached across to my dresser for the binoculars I had been using to show Bean the raccoon family the week before. They were using a hollow in the pine to raise babies, and Bean had squealed with excitement at the glimpses of tiny noses and paws at the lip of the hole. I got hold of them, raised them to my eyes, and looked. It was a... a creature. I fiddled with the focus dials, trying to make sense of what I was looking at. A bear? No, too big. As I got it into focus, the thing moved, 
circling the tree slightly so that the moonlight fell more across it. My heart skipped. I had the sudden urge to piss and a swirling wrench in my bowels. My pulse thrummed, and I felt the hair on my scalp prickle and rise. The shivering thing was a sort of skin rough, opened like an umbrella all around behind a nightmarish head. It was a little like a hippo. Small eyes gleamed black on the sides of a long, sweeping face. The lower jaw hung out further than the upper. The whole head bulged wider towards the chin, and enormous, vicious teeth arched upwards from the bottom jaw at the front. Two gigantic, curved tusks thrust upward. Between them, two shorter points jutted gleaming straight forwards. All along the lower jaw, back towards where it met the upper, rows of razor-sharp teeth glinted in the white moonlight. They looked like crop teeth, growing straight from the jaw, no gums. As the thing snaked its head side to side, I saw the rows of teeth were mirrored in the upper jaw, minus the tusks. The slight twisting of the head stopped, and the shivering and clicking intensified. The noise was strangely familiar somehow. Then there was a sudden blur of movement. A flash of striped fur, a millisecond-long chorus of squeaks, and the creature was... gone. I lowered the binoculars and scanned the yard frantically. Where the fuck was that thing? There, over by the fence. I lifted the binoculars again just in time to see it sliding a raccoon into that terrible mouth. Its arms, if you could call them that, were thin and impossibly long. They reached easily to the ground so that the one it wasn't eating from appeared to be stood on. The hand knuckled over. As it teased the raccoon into its maw, the arm flexed and rotated. It seemed to have two or three elbows, which all seemed to bend in every direction. There was a sort of hand at the end with three digits. Two were short, stumpy, but the third was hugely long, almost as thick as the arm, and terminated in a long, sharp claw. The claw was straight, with just a sharply curled hook at the tip. It was this hook the thing was teasing the raccoon free from. Three more. The babies hung in a limp row on the claw behind it, skewered. It had speared them in that one second, I realized, all four of them. It's from those old woods, I thought, as I watched it artfully devouring its prey. We've cut its home down to build a strip mall, and now it's come down to town to eat. The head rough was lowering now, hanging down over the shoulders like a cloak. I decided it must have been echolocating. That's what those clicks had reminded me of. Bats or dolphins echolocating. Maybe it was using the rough as a sort of huge ear to help it find its prey, so the tiny eyes weren't so good in the dark then. I'd been so sweaty when I woke, and now I was freezing, standing in the gentle breeze from the window with my blood swishing like slush through my veins. I watched in horrified fascination as the creature used its huge tusks to slide a baby raccoon from its claw into its mouth. There was a soft crunching of bone, but I watched as a chew. I began to hear the clicking again, and for a second, I thought I must have been wrong about what it was. 
But then I caught a movement off behind it and realized with a creeping dread that I wasn't wrong. It was a second one of the things I could hear clicking now. The second thing stood beyond the fence the first was hunched by. It had its rough up and was rotating its head as the first had, trying to get a lock on something. I could see it better in the moonlight out there. It stood out dark against the gray concrete of the driveway. It stood tall, 15 or more feet, reared back on massive hind limbs and a thick, muscular-looking tail. It was a little like a kangaroo, only much, much heavier-looking. The hind feet were enormous. There were three toes, two pointing forwards and one back, each tipped with a colossal hooked claw. The head was huge in profile, three feet at least, rough to chin, those long tusks curving about two feet upwards. The two thin arm limbs hung bent, the hands curled over, just in front of it, like a grotesque begging puppy. Its rough shivered as it rotated and clicked, and I saw there were spines almost like porcupine quills. The tips of some stuck out from edges of the rough were supporting it. More were standing out stiff from its upper back. It was facing the window over there, the one above the garage. As I watched, strands of shining drool slid from between the terrible teeth, forming a puddle on the driveway, and a fit of violent shivering hit me so hard that I had to hold onto the windmill to stop myself falling. This was where the dozens of stains had come from. How many of these things were there? It was looking into the window, I realized, into the bedroom where I knew a lazy young teenager called Mikey slept. I'm not a religious man, but I found myself praying all the same. Please let the window be closed. Please, God, let the window in Mikey's room be locked. Everything seemed to happen at once, then. It suddenly clicked much more rapidly and snatched its head around as if it had the neck of an owl past 180 degrees in one fluid motion, so it was facing entirely the other way. And the same second voice behind me said, Daddy? And I almost jumped out of my skin. I threw the binoculars on the bed and ran to Bean, grabbing her up before she could say something else. Shh! I whispered urgently into her ear. Stay real quiet, Bean, okay? There's something out there. The hipporaptors came back, Daddy. She breathed frantically. They're hungry. You're okay, baby bean. I squeezed her. Daddy's got you. I placed her carefully on my bed. Stay here, okay? I'm going to see if it's gone. I'm only going to the window. I crept back to the glass and looked out. The one from the driveway was gone, but I still saw and heard the other crunching on the last baby raccoon in the shadows down there. After a moment, it sort of flapped its rough out in a little shake and then stood and began to shamble away on all fours. As it disappeared down the street, I felt some of the tension leave me. I think they're gone, I whispered. When I looked round, Bean had her back to me. She was standing on my bed, staring through the little window above the headboard that faced onto the street, the binoculars up at her eyes. Daddy? She said sadly. They're not gone. 
I started to climb across the bed towards her and heard a commotion outside, then a yell and a crash, and a short shriek cut off as it began. As I reached her, she turned and grabbed me, hard, in a desperate squeeze of fear. She tried to whisper in a voice strangled by sobs. Uncle Phil didn't lock the window, she choked. Through the window, I saw the hole where Phil's guest room window had been, a corner of net curtain billowing out. My eyes slid down to the shattered window frame, splintered pieces of wood laying in a dark stain on the driveway. Then the street began to echo and clamor with my good friend's screams. was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Kieran Regan. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. Thank you.